This Resurrection Sunday, our passage is in the book of Hosea, chapter 7. Hosea, chapter 7, and we'll be looking at verses 13 to 16. So turn to Hosea 7, 13 to 16. And as you get there, can imitation be as good as the genuine? And even as I ask that question... You probably had some feelings when you when I said those words. When you heard the word imitation, you probably had a negative feeling. Right? That word imitation carries with it a negative sense. And when you hear that word genuine, right, you hear uh, something of positive, right? A, a positive sense. You want genuine leather, not imitation leather. Uh, although these days I think that's in some circles switching and they want so-called vegan leather, which isn't, right? It's imitation, but let's change the language because if we called it imitation leather, we wouldn't want to buy it. But if it's vegan leather, well, maybe we can feel good. We can have our moral, uh, moral sense of good by not having animals killed for the benefit of our new purse or uh, wallet or whatever it may be that we're looking belt. There are some things, though, which imitation... Items are passable, or we can get away with imitation. I'm going to go ahead and say it, and I know this is a controversial opinion, but I'm okay with imitation ketchup. It can be a store brand ketchup. Some people are very strong feeling. I think I just got a look of how dare you ever say those words. But to me, it, it really doesn't matter. Like, I know that there are differences, but it really doesn't matter to me. Uh, there are times when we may even develop a preference for the imitation over the real, uh, maybe because of our wallet. And again, that's probably why I make that standard of ketchup. I'm not going to pay 10 bucks for a bottle of ketchup. I don't think they're that expensive yet, but, you know, who knows? I'm okay with the cheap stuff. Or the imitation might allow us to flex some high branding, you know, high-end branding on a low-end budget. All right, we'll get the knockoff Louis Vuitton, and even though that the letters are wrong on it, right, it looks from a distance, as long as you, you know, don't squint and look too close, it looks like the real thing, and people can be impressed. Oh, look, they have Louis Vuitton. Well, no, not quite. Uh, I have a jacket that's a Charles Klein. I like to think of that as like it's Calvin's lesser-known brother, but it was cheaper. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. We want high-end branding will we'll suffice with the imitation if we're on a low-end budget. But if I were to ask you the question, is imitation religion as good as genuine religion? Again, you would probably have those same kind of feelings about the, the, the senses of those words, right? You would think imitation bad and genuine good, and you would be right. Imitation, bad, genuine, good. We see this throughout the scripture. God's concern for those that are his people is for a genuine religion. We see it in the book of James. Uh, James 1, 26 to 27, as one instance, James 1, 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religious is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And indeed, if we go went back to the book of James, 
we kind of get that that's the sense of what James is aiming at in the entire letter. He really wants those who he is writing to to have a genuine religion because false religion is worthless. We certainly have it in the gospel accounts. Uh, we see it when Jesus confronts the religious Pharisees, Pharisees in Matthew 23. The religious Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 13, uh, as just one instance of that, but the whole chapter is filled with this. But Matthew 23, 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. I didn't remember, who are the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees are the ultra-religious. They're a very conservative sect. They're well-regarded in society as being religious. And they're often the religious leaders. Who are the scribes? They're the ones who copy the scriptures. They're supposed to know the scriptures well. They're supposed to be able to say it, right? If you've written the scriptures down a number of times, at some point, something's going to stick in your head. And yet Jesus says to them, Whoa, because you shut people out of heaven. You don't go in yourself and you don't let other people go in. Right? They have a false religion, a hypocrite, a hypocritical religion, which goes back to something of the, of the Greco-Roman plays in which actors would put on false faces. And that's what this idea is, right? It's a false face. And G- indeed, Jesus came to save us from imitation religion, he called us to more in Matthew 5.48 in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.48 says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Your righteousness must exceed, must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And we've already seen this matter of disingenuous religion in the book of Hosea. Hosea 6.6. Go back to Hosea 6.6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So over and over throughout the scriptures and even in our own passages here in Hosea, we come to this issue of real religion versus false religion. And I want us to understand today in our passage that disingenuous religion is meaningless. Disingenuous religion is meaningless. So let us read our passage today, Hosea 7, starting at verse 13. And this is the word of the Lord. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. I have said it before, but it bears repeating. The people of Israel are religious. They're not irreligious, right? It's not as though they don't have any religion. It's not as though that they are atheistic and say, well, I just don't believe in God. No, they are religious. They're very religious. They believe in God. They believe in many gods, and they offer worship to these gods, even while paying lip service to the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. 
Already in chapter 7 of the book of Hosea, God has called out the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, right? He's called them out because he says he knows their sins. We see that in verse 2. They they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Uh, He knows and he sees how the king delights in evil men, right? We see that in verse 3. By their evil, they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. We see how God... Uh, observes the passions of these of the kings of those who attend the king the courtiers that how the passions are inflamed and the king doesn't really care right the king actually likes it the king invites them to his court mockers or scorners the reprobates and he turns back to addressing the people kind of more directly warning them that they're flitting to and fro in various political alliances is going to do the exact opposite of what they think it's going to do, right? They think it's going to strengthen their position as a nation, but in reality, all it's doing is carting off the wealth of Israel to foreign nations. Their strength diminishes. Their bread is moldy, and they munch on it, and they don't even recognize it, and it turns your stomach, right? And now we come to our passage today, and we find a people who are unwilling to repent. They're supposed to be turning towards God, but at every turn... They instead turn away from God. We find a people much like every person without Christ's intervening work, intractably blocked from a relationship of peace with God. So let's get into our passage today, and I want us to first consider woe in verse 13. Woe. And God says, woe to them. Woe to them. And this is a cry of denunciation. This is not a good thing. Uh, woe sometimes is a lament. Uh, we see this, for instance, in the book of Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah has this vision of the Lord God. Uh, he says, woe is me, I am undone. And right, we understand that to be a lament. He's, he is expressing something of his feeling of seeing the risen or, you know, seeing God in his glory. But here, this woe, is not one of lament so much as it is one of a cry of coming calamity. This is not, woe is me, this is woe is them. They they are going to be saying woe. They will be saying woe and lament because of the woe I'm going to bring on them. And right, we see that the particular sin in view here is, right, woe to them for they have strayed from me. Woe to them for they have strayed from me. They have fled from me. They have abandoned God in right worship. Right, everything the people of Israel have done is to go away from God, not towards him. And as destruction and devastation begun to be felt by them, right, as God's promise to them of destruction begins to be felt by them, rather than turning to God and repenting of their sins and and seeking his forgiveness we'll see here in a little bit they instead repent of god and turn ever deeper into their sin they continue down their path of sin and we have this poetic couplet here right because the next kind of verse here is or the next portion of this verse is destruction to them for they have rebelled against me right this is continuing that so what are we to know the woe it's destruction Why? Because they have strayed. Or in the second place we have, because they have rebelled. Woe, destruction. Why? Strain, rebellion. 
Hosea 7.10 tells us that the pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God nor seek him for all this. What is befalling them is a testimony to them. They should have seen the clues, but they don't. And instead they stray further. They flee from right worship. They rebel. In all this, they do not return to God. And we really have before us the people who are intractable. They don't, they cannot be corrected. We have before us a people who are hardened in their sinfulness. And it reminds me of that situation which Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. So we can look at that. Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to 32. Romans 1, 28 to 32. Listen to what Paul describes here. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Right, Paul writes here that God gives people over to their sinfulness. You want to reject me? You don't want to hear my commands? You want to go your own way? Go your own way. And sin begets more sin. More sin begets more sin. Evil evolves and it becomes more than what it was before. This even though they know God's righteous decree. And right, as we think of that, as you maybe heard that read, as you looked at the text there, it sounds like what's happening in Hosea's day. Right? The people rejected God, though they could know what is right and wrong. Right? It's not as though they don't have the ability to know that. They're God's people. They even claim to be God's people. Right? We go back to, to chapter 1 where God says, Not my people. And what's the point in him saying that, right? We, we addressed it then, but it's this idea that they, they were going around saying, well, we're the people of God. We're the people of God. God says, you keep saying that. I don't think you know what it means. You're not my people, and I'm not your God. So stop saying it, and I'm going to prove it to you. Here's what's coming. Right? This is the situation in the time of Hosea. They have, of all the peoples of the earth, the ability to know God, to know his commands, and they refuse. They turn away from him. Even the words of the prophet Hosea are there to get his attention, their attention, right? They're there to, to make them see and understand who God is, what he wants. And they could have, in that moment, decided... You know, Hosea keeps telling us we need to turn back to God. Maybe we need to look into this. Maybe we need to find a copy of the scriptures and read and see what it says. Maybe the problem of our social ills isn't that Assyria is is getting larger and our friends in Egypt are, are ignoring us. Maybe the problem is us. They could have done that. They had every opportunity. But instead, they continue in their rebellion. They continue straying. 
And I say that this is much the same situation I think we find ourselves in today. We live in a culture that is given over to sin. And why do I say that? Look at the foolishness of which we, of which we applaud, of which we say that this is a moral good. The conversations that we are having in our culture, I think, belie this reality that we have been given over to sin, and so we should not be surprised when we see sin begets more sin. We should not be surprised that evil grows. And we should not be surprised when destruction and woe come upon this land. God continues and, and says in verse 13 of Hosea 7, I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. God says, I would redeem them, or though I have redeemed them. And we get a sense of what I think is going on here and what David prays, for instance, when God makes a covenant with him, saying, your, your son shall reign on the throne forever, right? If we remember that covenant. In Second Samuel seven twenty three, we have this portion. I just want to read this portion that, that this is what we're talking about when, when we say that God redeems him. What do we mean by that? Second uh, Samuel seven twenty three. David prays, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be His people, making Himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. We go back to the land of Egypt, and we go back to the people of Israel as they're redeemed by the blood of the firstborn. We go to the Exodus when God delivered his people from slavery, right? This is a defining moment in the history of the people. And even if you look at, right, when God gives the Ten Commandments, what does he say? I am the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt. Here are my rules. Here are my commands. Obey them. They were slaves in Egypt. They were subjugated. They weren't even their own nation. They were even told to kill their male children. If you remember that right, Pharaoh says, the people are getting too numerous. We're going to be overwhelmed. We're going to lose our, our place as Egyptians. Let's make Egypt great again, and let's kill all the male children of the Hebrews. But God redeemed them. He sought them, and he bought them with his redeeming blood. But more than that, Right, more than just that one instance, God continues to redeem them. And we get that even in the sense of what David prayed there, right? Because he didn't just redeem them out of Egypt, but he redeemed them into a land. And again and again, God redeemed his people. Look at the book of the Judges. Look at the book of First Samuel. God buys his people out of captivity, out of slavery, over and again. And yet... They speak lies against me. Isaiah says, they speak lies against me. And this is probably in reference to the fact that they make covenant with God and then turn from that covenant. They say, God, I believe in you. God, I worship you. God, I want to glorify you. God, let's sing these psalms again and then immediately turn and worship false gods. They lie about what they believe. We can go back to the time of Joshua. Turn, turn there with me. If, 
in your scripture to Joshua chapter 24. I want us to look at a few portions of that. Joshua 24. We'll first start in verse 15. We'll go down a little bit. Joshua 24, 15. But we go back to the time of Joshua. Joshua has led the people. So where are we at in chapter 24? Joshua has led the people into the promised land. Joshua has, by the power of God, warred against the nations in the promised land and have subdued them by and large. Not entirely. The job isn't done. The job will be never done, we know, because the people don't do it in the book of Judges. Uh, we get that understanding. The Joshua 24, we have this, um, in verse 15, we have this final meeting. Joshua rallies everyone together and says, okay, here's the deal. Here's what's going on. I'm about to die. And the keys of the kingdom, as they were, are being passed to you. So what are you going to do about it? Joshua twenty four fifteen. This this is a famous verse which we like to put on our walls, right? We like to have a coffee mug with this verse on it. But it reads, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then look at verse 16. Then the people answered. How do the people answered? Yeah, you're right. We're not going to do that. No, they say, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Jump down to verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, You're right, Joshua. We can't do this. No. What do they say? No, but we will serve the Lord. Yet they speak lies against me. Yet they speak lies against me. And maybe in the moment they really truly did believe that they would serve the Lord. But it doesn't last for long. And I think that's what Hosea is pointing out, that the people have lied. The people lie about their, their trust and faith in God. The people don't really believe. They make covenant with the Lord. They promise fidelity to the Lord and then immediately turn and are are false, are adulterous. They say they will serve the Lord God in Him alone, but then they worship Baal. As a nation, they have rebelled. Right? And perhaps not even just on a national level, but on an individual level. As they go to worship, they, they promise, they make oaths to God, say, God, uh, I'm yours. And then they immediately kill and sacrifice an animal to worship Baal. They lie. The people are unfaithful. They're religious, but it's a disingenuous religion. It's easy to make an oath. It's easy to speak big things of of God, of following Christ, but will we? Jesus reminds his disciples of the cost of following after him in Luke 14, Luke 14, 28 to 33, Luke 14, 28 to 33. Jesus speaks, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, 
All who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation to ask for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Right? Builders estimate the cost. Kings evaluate the strength of their troops. And disciples of Christ count the cost. And what is the cost of following after Christ? Everything. Everything. In Matthew's Gospels, we get another part to this reality. Matthew 8, 19 through 22. Matthew 8, 19 through 22. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever, I, wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me go first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Right? And what is Jesus doing there? For both of these men who come to him, he gives the cost. In the first instance, the scribe comes up to him and kind of unreservedly says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, you're a fool because you don't even know what that means. You make this pronouncement, but you have no power to see it through. Because if you think following after me is luxury, is accolades, is dining in the best places, and reclining in the finest beds, you're a fool. Foxes and birds have more than I do. So it's kind of this big words, but no ability to see it through. Easy words to say, right? That's, those are easy words to say. We probably have said something like that ourselves, right? In those moments where we've been stirred up in our emotion, we say, God, I'll do anything you tell me to do. God, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And then we hear the whisper, okay, go serve in Africa, in the most remotest village, and probably be killed for it. And we say, ah, you got the wrong person. God, the message came, came wrong, wrong. Can you say that again? I'm hard of hearing. Right? We, we do that. Right? We make big proclamations without counting the cost. And in the second instance, this man who's called a disciple, says, well, I have family matters to attend to. Uh, and it's likely that his father wasn't yet dead. So what the disciple is asking for is permission. Let me take care of my father for however long it takes for him to die. He's, he's on the road of death. He's getting closer. It's, it's clear it's going to be sooner rather than later. But let me take care of him first. Let me get my house in order. And then I'll come after and follow you. And Jesus says, count the cost. The dead are dead. But what will you do with your life? And we may say that Jesus is being harsh, but understand that God deserves and demands our all. There are many who with good intentions start out and make great, great proclamations of following after Christ, but fizzle out when hardship strikes or when things in the world are shinier than they thought, right? more alluring than they thought. But what about you? What about you who profess in Christ? 
Because real religion is one that is meaningful, worthwhile, and it's only found in wholehearted pursuit of Christ. Teenagers, wholehearted means that your life is oriented towards one goal. You are often told to pursue your dreams with passions. Maybe you've heard of some, some other young person who, who football is his passion, right? He eats, drinks, and sleeps football. That's what consumes him. Or maybe uh, you've seen others who are concerned with video games, right? That, that video games are their passion. They want the latest and the greatest. Or maybe they focus in on one game and they want to be the best at that one game because maybe they could end up like uh, some of the YouTube stars or Twitch stars that we see and make millions of dollars playing this one game all their life. They're passionate about it. They're consumed with it. They're, they, all they do is obsess over it. That's what it means to be wholehearted. It means to be obsessed over something. And what Christ calls us is too, is to pursue Him as our passion. That the glory of God would consume our thoughts and desires. We are called to eat, breathe, and sleep the Scriptures. And if that sounds radical, it is. That's what God calls us to. And we might ask, why? What for? Well, this verse gives us a clue to that. Verse 13, right? I would redeem them. That word redeem, that's our clue. Why should we be so consumed with the glory of Christ? Redemption. Paul writes to the Galatian church in Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Continuing on to Galatians 4, 4-7, we have this issue come up again. Galatians 4, 4-7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Listen to this. What you deserve is woe. What you deserve is destruction, death. You are under the curse. You are sold over to sin from the very moment of your conception. David tells us as much in his prayer. Right In, in sin, my mother conceived me. That wasn't talking about his mother's sin. That was talking about his own sin. He knows from the very moment of conception, all he was consumed with was sin. But God sent his son. He sent Jesus. And if you believe in Christ Jesus, if you trust in him, if you are wholehearted towards him, if you count the cost and follow after him in truth, you are redeemed. You are bought out of slavery to sin. You are redeemed. You are bought out of the curse. Christ purchases you with the blood of his sacrifice. And through the spirit of God, you're adopted into the family of God and you become an heir of God. 
an heir to the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. And so we can cry out, Abba, Father. And this can only be if God has saved you. But there is only woe to those who flee from God, who turn to rebellion. There is only woe for those who falsely profess Christ, who speak only words of following after Christ, but whose deeds deny him. Now let's move from woe to wail. Woe to wail. And let's see how the people wail in verse 14. God says, they do not cry to me from the heart. Right? God's indictment of the people of Israel continues. They cry, but they wail upon their heads. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. They cry, they wail. It's not from their hearts, and it's for a dark, sinister purpose. The people have failed to listen to the song of David in Psalm 51, 16 to 17. Psalm 51, 16 to 17. David writes, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Right? Hosea has already told them as much in, back in chapter 6, verse 6. They cry out, but it's not with genuineness. Right? It's not with sincerity. It's not with a broken spirit. And we might understand that, right, as humbleness. It's not with a contrite heart. That is godly sorrow. So why do they cry and wail? Well, they wail because they're in need. They're in, they're in desperation. They see the walls closing in on them. And they're concerned. They're in a bad situation. And understand, right, it's easy to cry out to God when we're in a bad situation. How quick we are to turn to God when all else that we've relied upon has been shown to be what it is, vanity, right? It's easy when everything else is removed from us to turn to God. But also, how quick we are to abandon our pronouncements when things are easy again. How quick we prove to be liars, How many times have we maybe prayed, God, I'll go to Sunday school every week. God, I'll go to church every week if you but deliver me in this instance. And how quick we are to turn back to our old habits and our old ways as soon as we're removed from that pressing situation. What's worse here about the people of Israel, though, right, is they wail upon their beds And we see in the second part of the verse, right, for grain and wine, they gash themselves. This wailing and this gashing are related and we're removed from that context. So we don't immediately see it. But what we're talking about is Canaanite worship practices. This wailing isn't crying out to God. This wailing is crying out to Baal. And how do you get Baal's attention? You cut yourself. You bleed yourself. All right, we see that when... Uh, The prophet uh, confronts the prophets of Baal on the mountaintop. What do they do? They wail. They cry. They get mocked. He says, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he went to relieve himself. Yell louder. And then they cut themselves. They bleed themselves. Right, so we understand that what they're doing, right, they're in desperation. They do not cry to God from the heart, but instead they cry out to the false gods. They don't worship God on, on God's terms. They worship, worship God on their own terms. Even in their desperation and need, they fail to return to God. 
And this too is a temptation, I think, in our own day when it comes to what we do as we gather together. The scriptures have to be our guide. Right? They thought that they would be heard by God because they're wailing and gashing themselves. Did God command that? No. Did God want that? No. But they sure thought they did. They sure that that, that was the answer. And I think sometimes we do this today in our corporate worship is we go to forms which are utterly foreign to the scriptures. The 1689 Baptist Confession tells us the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will, that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So I pose this to you. What do zip lines, clowns, and Easter egg helicopter drops have to do with corporate worship? They don't. And what's worse is I think sometimes we unknowingly invite into our services demonic suggestions under the guise of cultural appeasement or this will make people feel welcome. Right? We, we invite in secular songs of people who worship demons and we don't think of it that way right we just think oh these are popular songs out in our culture well let's just have them in here no that's a problem that's a problem we do these things sometimes without realizing it but we have to be guided by the scriptures let's not be wary of creativity when within the confines of right worship but let us be quick to flee from innovation on the word of god so the people wail here, they're cutting themselves to, for God to pay attention to themselves. But such works are not else more than rebellion, right? They rebel against me. They don't cry to me with a whole heart. They're not seeking me, they're seeking Baal. They may say my name, but they're seeking Baal. It's not more than rebellion and wickedness. And so let's see that next in verses 15 to 16, wickedness. And God says, although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. Right? God is the one who protected and provided for them. God is the one who trained them. He's the one who strengthened them. He's the one that led them into the promised land with power. How did the walls of Jericho fall? Because of the power of God. How were they able to take the land? Because of the power of God. God did it. And yet for all this, they devise evil. They plot mischief. Hosea will later write in, in chapter 11, verse 3, 11, 3, Yet it, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. It's this idea again, I've done it. I've done this work for them. And they rebel against it. God had shown them such loving kindness, and for that he is repaid with evil. For the good that God has done to them, he is repaid with the thanks of mischief. They think only of how they can abuse their relationship with God. Indeed, I think they've gotten to the point of treating God like a vending machine. If we put in the right number of credits... We'll get whatever we want in return. 
He's the magic genie. He'll give us what, what we want because we invoke his name. And understand that that is something that has passed, not just from Hosea's day, but into our own day, right? We, that we think we can say the magical incantation, and if we say the right words, then God is, is bound. And I don't mean that as in like a hopeful thing. I mean that literally he is bound, he is controlled, he is subjugated to our will. That's demonic. And it's not worship. It's not right religion. It's demonic. Verse 16 says they return, but not upward. And this return is, right, this idea of repenting. They repent, but not toward him. They turn, but not toward the Most High. As the net translation renders it, uh, it, it just puts it out there plainly for us. They turn to Baal. They don't repent towards God. They repent towards Baal. They don't seek God. Right, when we talk about repentance, we talk about turning. So if you ever hear that, repent from your sins, we mean that we turn from our sins. And what do we turn from sin into God? That's this idea of repenting. That's, that's the direction it should go. We turn from the wrong and towards God. We turn from and to something. And the Israelites repented. But they did like an uno reverse repentance. They repented from God into their sin and turn toward their sin. God continues, and he uses this metaphor, they're like a treacherous bow, or this is like an unreliable bow, or a slack bow. And the idea is this, that they're, right, it's it's disingenuous, it's imitation. It looked like the bow was drawn, like the arrow is going to fly true and hit its target, but instead it falls short. And every time you pick that bow up and you go and knock back an arrow and you let that arrow fly, it misses the target. No matter how many times you shoot it, it misses the target. It's a treacherous bow. They're hypocrites. I would say to you, what do you do with a treacherous bow? What do you do with a a bow that doesn't work? Burn it. Throw it out. Send it to the dump. They're hypocrites, right? They seem to be running the race with gusto. They seem to be religious. They seem to be striving towards holiness. But all they're doing is shadow boxing. They're beating the air. And you can put on a good show of faithfulness to God. It's easy to appear pious in public. In public, we can adorn a persona that would best even the Apostle Paul. Because right, if you remember, sometimes we, the, the description we get of the Apostle Paul is that he is one of weakness. He's messed up looking. All he ever does is he gets up there and he starts weeping. Who wants to be like him? But God is not fooled. He knows our hearts. He knows our prayers, our cries. He knows when they are not towards him from the heart. He can tell the difference between genuine and false faith. Disingenuous religion is meaningless because it's not going to get you what you think it will. And I would encourage all of you, if you profess faith in Christ, to examine yourselves, test and see if you're in the way. Paul tells as much to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. 
Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Right? Paul tells the Corinthian church, right, that, that if Jesus Christ is in them, then that changes who they are. That changes what they ought do. That changes what they should say. Unless Christ really isn't in them. So he says, examine, test. And I pray that you not fail to meet the test. I would really encourage you, if, if you've not done that, examine yourself. Test yourself. What are you really relying on before God? What are you really believing in? What are you really trusting in? What is really motivating you in life? What is motivating you? What are you aiming for? What is your goal? Because I pray that you not fail to meet the test. I pray that for myself. And we all pray Christ help us. And Christ is the only one who can help us, right? It is his work on the cross that enables us to stand before God as one holy and blameless and above reproach. It is only the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we have any hope of being able to stand before God at all. And if you are relying on anything else, you rely on vanity, vapor, smoke, wind. Hosea continues in verse 16, Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. Right, The princes, the rulers will fall by the sword. War is coming to the land. The king will be killed and the courtiers are going to follow him. And God gives this reason, right? The rage of their tongue or their insolence. It's this idea that the leaders are mocking and scorning God in his word. How often Hosea is probably derided for preaching God's word. Certainly we see that in the other prophets. Jeremiah is a, a great example of that in the southern kingdom of Judah. Right? He was thrown into to jail and to prison for preaching the word of God. Their supposed religion, the leader's supposed religion, would be shown to be what it is, a sham and meaningless. And when they thought that they would be applauded, they will instead find themselves derided. Right, that this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. The, the end part of that verse there. This shall be their derision in the end, land of Egypt. They will suffer derision by their allies, the Egyptians. And further, this call back to Egypt links us back up to verse 13, right? When I would redeem them out of Egypt. They left Egypt with the Egyptians in derision. Right? The Egyptians were looted. Right, they, they said, here, you want some gold and silver for the journey? Here you go. Go, go, go. Get out of here. Bye. It was nice having you here, but leave. And now they're going to return. And they're not going to return to plute, to, to plunder, to loot. They're going to return for derision. Now the people will be carted back off into slavery. And you have to consider here the insolence of those religious leaders in uh, Jesus' own day. Right? How they mocked and scorned him. They thought themselves big stuff and faithful followers of God. And yet, 
They were fighting against God. They were mocking the Most High. When they mocked Jesus, they mocked the Most High. And even when He rose from the grave, as they heard the reports, and as our Scripture reading in Matthew told us, what did they do? Oh, here, guards, here's some money. You go tell this is what happened. Disciples, they came and stole the body. That's what happened. And if anything, if if word should get to the governor and the governor says, what, you failed in your duty, you're going to be dead. Don't worry, we're going to intercede for you and say, no, 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 don't worry. We're not going to hold it against them. They mocked Jesus. They scorned Jesus. And even as they heard the reports that he rose from the grave, as they see the disciples healing and preaching in Jesus' name, they are still determined to silence God. Look at the early chapters of the book of Acts. That's what they do. Don't preach in the name of Jesus. Don't heal in the name of Jesus. And I think what must have their countenance been when they died and the judge that they stood before was Jesus the one that they had mocked and scorned, the one that they had condemned and crucified. What trembling fear they must have felt. What terror. How crestfallen they must have been. What woe to them. And what of you? What will you do with the words of Hosea? Friend, understand that all those who turn to God in sincerity and genuineness will in no way be cast out, right? These are the blessed words of Jesus, John six thirty-seven to 40, John six thirty-seven to 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And what remains for you this day, this very hour, is to cry out to God for the forgiveness of your sins. Cry out to Him with your whole heart. Ask Him to save you from your sins. Ask Him to save you from the wicked hypocrisy that will surely damn you. Count the cost of following Christ and realize this, that whatever God calls you to forsake, all your sin, all this worldly pleasure and good is nothing, nothing in comparison to the eternal weight of glory to come. This temporary world is nothing in comparison with the eternity to come. So repent this day of your sins. Turn from them and turn to God. Look to Christ Jesus and believe in Him. Trust that He is who He says He is. Trust in His Word. Trust that He has done everything necessary for salvation. Believe that He has indeed risen from the grave. That Sunday so many years ago changed the world. Christ Jesus was buried dead in a tomb. And on that morning, He rose from that grave. He dealt sin the death blow. He mortally wounded death. And there is a day coming when sin will be no more and death will be crushed forever. There is a day who, for all who put their trust in Christ will rise likewise. And the mortal will be clothed with immortality. And you can share in the resurrection of Christ. 
if you trust in him. So do so. Follow after him all your days. Some of you may need to repent from a dead religion, from a false religion. You may think that God is satisfied that you have some form of religion, that you acknowledge him here or there, that you pray to him on this occasion or that occasion, or that you picked up your Bible and read some in the last week. God is not satisfied with disingenuous religion. He's not satisfied with a hypocritical heart. God will bring woe, judgment upon all false religion because he is a jealous God. As Joshua said, he's a jealous God and he's not going to put up with false idols. He's not going to be put up with sharing his glory, his worship with any other. And to you, I say, repent. Turn from your false religion this day. Examine yourself. And I say that about you. Yes, you. Examine yourself. Because it is far better to suffer some embarrassment now than it is to suffer the punishment of your sins for all eternity. Brothers and sisters in Christ, understand this, that if you sincerely call out to God, you will be heard. If you worship Him in spirit and in truth, He will be pleased. And if you fail, if you sin against Him, repent anew. Turn from your sins and turn to God. We will not be done with sin this side of heaven. We have every day a reason to repent, to seek God's forgiveness for our sins. And we have a gracious God abounding in steadfast love and mercy who is ready to forgive us our sins. Be encouraged, believer. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that's not me saying that. That's the scripture saying that. Trust the word of God. Trust the author of it. Trust the risen Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, forgive us. God, forgive us for false religion, for disingenuous religion. Father, for an imitation religion. Father, forgive us for playing at followers of Christ. Forgive us, Lord, for not counting the cost and not being willing to pay it immediately. Father, we pray for your mercy. God, we pray for your spirit to fall upon those who do not know you, who falsely profess Christ, Lord, that they would open their eyes and see for the very first time the truth of your word, the truth of the risen Lord Jesus. Father God, give give grace to such persons. Give grace unto us if we are numbered in that, in that amount. And Father, we pray that you would forgive us, we who are your people, who, who know better. Lord, forgive us for hypocritical worship. God, forgive us for being distracted and deceived by lesser things. Father, forgive us for inviting into our corporate time of worship forms and, and methods of worship that you do not command that are innovations which have no place. Father, help us. Help us to see and understand your word. Help us, Lord, to believe it. Father, that you would receive all the glory that you deserve, that we would worship you in the splendor of your holiness. And we know 
that your glory is our good. We know that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We know that surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives and we will dwell in your house forever. And how good it is to be in your house. Father, we thank you for the risen Lord Jesus. We thank you for sending your only begotten Son to die in our place, to to shed his blood that we might have the forgiveness of our sins, to paying for our redemption, to buy us out of slavery to sin and death. And we thank you that on that day, he rose from the grave. And by that we have hope that we too shall share in such resurrection, provided we share in his suffering, as the apostle says. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to see, to hear, to believe and to understand and to wholeheartedly pursue you. You who are the only one worth such devotion. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.